After my lentil freak out, who calls me? My mother-in-law. <laughs> And she's like, hi, honey, um, I'm going to bring another stew, okay? Love you, bye. I start thinking, holy shit, this lady totally doesn't trust me to be able to do this. From the Jewish Food Society, I'm Amanda Dell, and this is Schmaltzy. Personal stories about food and the people behind them. Today on Schmaltzy, we have Mythical Kitchen senior culinary producer, Nicole Anayati. She's the online chef personality for Good Mythical Morning and Mythical Kitchen, and she co-hosts their wildly popular podcast, A Hot Dog is a Sandwich. First, you'll hear Nicole's story that was recorded live from the Schmaltzy stage in San Francisco. Then we'll chat about her love of Shabbat, being a Persian Jew in the culinary world, and more. Here's Nicole. I have always loved attending Shabbat. The warmth of the familiar faces, the joy of catching up, and the incredible food surrounding the whole entire event. But notice how I said attending Shabbat, not necessarily hosting Shabbat. For some unexplainable reason, I have this really deep-seated anxiety about feeding people that I love on a large scale. Now, I know that doesn't make a lot of sense. I am in the food industry, right? But not your typical food industry. I mean, I did go to culinary school, but they didn't teach things like the genesis of gormasabzi or proper Persian rice cookery. And to be honest, I make stunt food on YouTube. <laughs> we make silly things like Flamin' Hot Cheeto Chicken Sandwiches. And one time we made a bread bong, like a little literal bong out of bread for uh, funneling clam chowder directly into your mouth, right? So I was never necessarily equipped with the tools to make a legitimate full-blown Persian Shabbat. So I'm married to this great guy named David. He loves people. He loves to be surrounded by friends and family and colleagues. It's truly where he finds his happiness. I love hanging out with the homies, but I also really value being at home, having my quiet space, and having my peace. So a few months into our marriage, David and I were washing dishes together. He said, hey, Nicole, we should have Shabbat at our house one time. Let's get the family together. What do you think about that? Instantly, I froze. You mean to tell me you want us, AKA me, to make a full-blown Persian Shabbat dinner, which is epic, by the way. I work 11 hours a day, so do you. You want your mom to come eat dinner at my house? You want my mom to come eat dinner at my house? These two ladies have been making the best Shabbat dinners for like 30 years. They're pros. There's no way. No, 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 no. But all I could muster was a simple, ask me about it next week. <laughs> so next week rolls along, and then a few weeks later, and then it was a few months later, and every time he would ask me, I would just push it off. I'm like, no, 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 I'm too busy. Maybe we can talk about it tomorrow, just tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. And he actually sat me down on the couch and was like, 
Nicole, we're Jews. <laughs> Let's have Shabbat dinner at our place. What do we have to lose? I mean, it's not that big of a deal. You can just invite a few people and it'll be great. Don't you want people to experience the shalom by it just bursting out of our walls? Come on, babe, let's do it. I, yet again, froze. My mom is a damn good cook. And not only is she a good cook, she's a clean cook. She's gonna have a freaking cow if she sees a dirty pot in the sink when guests are over. My dad's just gonna stand there and be like, we spent money on culinary school for this? My brother is like Gordon Ramsay, but Persian version. <laughs> and I was really nervous he was going to say something offensive in front of people. My sister knows that I'm the baby of the family, and she knows I'm going to screw up some way, somehow. My in-laws are going to come through the door, and they're going to be like, no, this is not good enough. We're taking our son with us. <laughs> so all of these thoughts were ruminating in my head. But again, I squeaked out a, okay, Fine, this Friday. So David and I collaborated. We made a menu of some Persian classics. We had things like Persian rice, tadig, saffron roasted chicken, this incredible stew called khoresh delape, which is filled with lentils and dried limes with these crispy potatoes on top. It's a tomato-based stew. It's absolutely delicious. So David decided he was going to take some time off of work out of the kindness of his heart. He's like, listen, babe, I'll go buy some flowers. I'll pick up some leeks or something and I'll drop them off, okay? Or just call me for whatever you need. <laughs> and that was really nice of him to do, obviously. And I appreciated it, obviously, but I was the one who's cooking the meal. I'm the one who's gonna to be toiling away in that kitchen trying to recreate my mom's and my mother-in-law's food when in reality, I'm not really equipped for that stuff. My whole entire worth was based off of this spread. So I had 13 people to impress and I got to work. I started on my stew. The meat was braising, the onions were translucent, the aromas were smelling good and familiar, so I knew I was doing okay. And then out of the corner of my eye, I'm like, those lentils look weird. The packaging, I'm like, I've never bought those lentils before. So I panic and I call my mom, I'm like, mom, 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 what kind of lentils do I need? Do I need the regular lentils or the quick cook lentils? And she's like, regular, why? You didn't buy the quick cook ones, did you? Guess which ones I bought? The quick cook lentils. So I instantly just stand in my kitchen, just shocked. I'm sad, I'm mad. So I just throw my lentils into the pot and just hope for the best. I pray to the stew gods and the matriarchs of my family that my stew will come out semi-decent and not like mortar for bricklaying. After my lentil freak out, who calls me? My mother-in-law. <laughs> and she's like, hi, honey. I'm going to bring another stew, okay? Love you, bye. And I'm like, okay, love you, bye. But again, I froze. I start thinking, holy shit, this lady totally doesn't trust me to be able to do this. This whole entire dinner is just going down and it's going down fast. People are coming in like, what, an hour? How the hell am I gonna be able to do this? 
and then seven o'clock rolls around. And of course, my mother-in-law, she's very on time. She comes in, guns blazing. She starts killing. She goes, which is like an expression of happiness and joy. And she has an antique vase from her house under one arm. And then she has the pot of stew in the other. And she's just like, hey. And I'm like, hey, what's up? <laughs> she hands me the vase. She kisses both of my cheeks. And then we start to set the table. Dinner is to be served. As I look out across the table, I see a sea of faces. I see my mom, who matches my eyeline and winks at me during hamotzi. I see my dad laughing and holding her hand. My brother and sister absolutely excited to try all these dishes. My in-laws are beaming with pride. And of course, there's David right next to me at the head of the table, just beyond pleased with the whole damn thing. So as I scoop some of my mother-in-law's stew on my plate, I start to realize, oh my gosh, she's not here to belittle me. She's not here to make me feel crappy. She's here to help me. And she's here to help me through food. And then I come to the realization that even if I put a bucket of KFC in front of everyone for Shabbat dinner, it wouldn't even matter because at the end of the day, the food is rather insignificant. What's the most significant part about Shabbat is the family. It's the lack of judgment, it's the community, it's feeling like you have somebody there to trust you, and that's the best part about the whole thing. But aside from that, we actually did a semi-decent job. The rice was fluffy, the tadig was crispy, the salads were salading, and the stews came out absolutely perfect. Now, I would like to say that I started hosting Shabbat from then on out, but uh, unfortunately, no, that, that did not happen. But luckily for us, our parents live in a four-mile radius of us, so we would kind of hop between their houses for every Shabbat. So at the end of the day, I ended up still doing my favorite thing, which was attending Shabbat. Hi, Nicole. It's so nice to see you again. You too. It's a pleasure always. Thank you so very much for sharing that very funny, but also very personal story with us. Thank you. I have to ask, since we were last in San Francisco together and you told your story, have you hosted Shabbat since that time? I haven't hosted Shabbat, but I actually, I just started leaving work a little bit earlier for Shabbat so I can get home and at least light Shabbat candles before sunset, which is just one step in the right direction. I'm doing that much, but when it comes to cooking a whole meal and inviting people, I'm still not there yet. I will eventually. From your story, I was really struck by how meaningful Shabbat is to you. Tell us more about how you grew up with it and how your family thinks about it. Sure. My brother and sister are 12 and 13 years older than me. So a lot of the times they were like adulting while else I was still being a kid and they moved out and they started their lives and whatever. But every Friday, my mother's door was open to them and we would always have Shabbat. Sometimes it would be extended to the other parts of our family. But for the most part, it was always us five, which I really enjoyed. My mom would always light Shabbat candles. She would always make dinner from scratch. I was not really involved in any of the cooking process. 
which she did on purpose, which I'm grateful for. She really allowed me to be a kid and to learn cooking a little bit later in life whenever I was ready to do so. But yeah, Shabbats were always a big deal. We loved being at home together just for those few hours. They meant a lot. Just catching up, knowing what everyone's doing, making sure everyone's okay, talking about difficult subjects was something that was really pertinent to me growing up. And I plan to do that in the future as well. Beautiful. Now, were there ever times when you were a teen where like you had to explain to your friends, hey, I can't go out on Friday night or uh, I'll talk to you another day or anything like that? Of course. Well, luckily for me, a lot of my friends were Persian Jewish girls that totally were in the same bracket as me. If anything, I was the one that would leave after Shabbat or come a little bit later to Shabbat. When I was a more like 19, 20, I was in culinary school. I was making friends that were outside of my typical bubble and I would sometimes ditch Shabbat and and have those experiences where I would go to like a concert with my friends from school and stuff like that, which was great and all. But the older I'm becoming, I'm going to be 30 next year. I really value that time now. But back then I was like, woo, screw this. I'm going to go do things with my non-Jewish friends. (laughs) Well, growing up in L.A. must have been fun. A lot of concerts came to town, I'm sure. All the time. I used to love going to shows. I would even go by myself and like meet people there. I was a big music nerd. But yeah. That was one of my favorite things to do when I was a lot younger. But now I kind of want to be home with my family. Yeah, yeah. I don't want to just eat food made from hands that I know the food's going to be good. I just want to eat a carbohydrate with my family. (laughs) (laughs) Is that too much to ask? The first thing that comes to mind when I think about the Persian Jewish community in L.A. is the scene from Clueless. Cher, she goes to Beverly Hills High, and she's there with Dion. They're walking through campus, and she's pointing out all the different groups on the hill. Like, okay, these are the skaters. These are the nerds. These are the people that run the TV station. Then she says, that's the Persian mafia. You can't hang with them unless you have a BMW. How does that make you feel when you hear that? Do you feel like that's like an outdated stereotype? I'd say it's a little bit outdated. The Persian community, there's a lot of materialistic things. But aside from that, it is a very warm, happy, positive, bright community to be a part of. Something I've noticed in the Persian Jewish community, if someone is asking for help, within moments, we will mobilize and help one another with any issue. Do you think that there is widespread misunderstanding about the community? A little bit. I think all communities that are minorities are a little bit misunderstood. But I think it's people like me and other Persian Jews out there just to push a narrative that's a little bit different than what's up from Clueless. Is there something you feel like you would want to change within the community or you are proud and always excited to be part of it? I'm definitely proud and excited to be a part of it. I couldn't imagine myself in any other community. I do think the most important thing is the togetherness and really emphasizing that togetherness and friendships and family and how important those things are. Because we're a small community, but we're a powerful community. Let's talk a little bit about your career and career path. Sure. And what you're doing now. For anyone out there who doesn't know, 
What is Mythical Kitchen and what is your job on a day-to-day basis? Mythical Kitchen is a spin-off channel of Good Mythical Morning, which is the most watched daily show in the world. Good Mythical Morning posts videos Monday through Friday. I believe we have maybe 17, 18 million subscribers on YouTube. Wow. And our Mythical Kitchen channel is all based on cooking and food and our personalities. I'm the senior culinary producer of Mythical, so I work for both channels, but I'm more on screen talent for Mythical Kitchen. And then a subsect of that is our podcast called A Hot Dog is a Sandwich. And that's where my co-host and I, Josh Scherer, talk about culinary conundrums like flats versus wings or is a Pop-Tart a ravioli? Yeah, that's pretty much the basis of what I do on a day-to-day. Sounds like a lot. How did you find your way into this career? I was working as a food stylist. I was a 1099 at a boutique marketing agency. I was doing research and development on the side. I was basically just a floating culinary orb until one day I started watching this show, Good Mythical Morning, and I would watch it every single morning. I would say to myself, these food things they're making, I can do that. I could probably do it better, maybe. I literally DM Josh, who is now my co-host and my boss, and I said, hey, do you ever need an assistant? Do you have any job openings? Let me know. He responded, and he's like, not right now, lol, or something like that. And then I was persistent. Every few weeks, I would just be like, hey, just reminding you, I'm very interested. I'm very available. When can I come in for an interview? Again, radio silence. And then I did it one more time. And then he answered and he's like, hey, we actually have availability. Come on in on this day. Can you come? And I'm like, yes, I can be there. I kind of shot my shot. I slid into someone's DMs and I forced them to interview me. And I'm here, what, three and a half years later, talking on a pod and starring in shows and producing great content for people all over the world. Wow. So is that something you kind of had to like explain to your parents? Was there a pressure to go into something more quote-unquote traditional? Of course. God bless my parents. They knew that I probably would never be a doctor, lawyer, engineer. But they never pushed on me to be something. They were very supportive of me. But they would question me. They're like, what are you doing? What is a food stylist? What is a research and development chef? I would really have to break it down for them and explain to them, my job entails this. I basically make food look good for a TV show, but it's not a TV show. It's on YouTube. Also, a lot of the times the food we make are very silly. They're not meant to be eaten all the time. We're going to make 27 different kinds of chicken tenders today, and some of them will have weird things on them. Or maybe we'll make a soup out of crickets one day, or we'll make a hot Cheeto chicken sandwich fiesta. Trying to explain that to my parents was a little bit odd, but after they saw a few episodes, they kind of got the hang of what it was. Is that pressure still something, though, that lives in the community about having a certain type of job. I think it's getting better every year. Every single time a kid goes to non-traditional school, I think every time you try something new, it's just pushing the envelope more and more. That's very exciting. Do you think that this original pressure was just because of being an immigrant or being new to a country, wanting to be successful? For sure. I think it's the notion of a sure thing. It's like, if you go to school, If you get your bachelor's, if you get your master's, if you do this and that, you will be guaranteed success. Whereas I went through a more untraditional route of you're going to go to cooking school. Good luck. 
I think the pressures to make something of yourself was always in the back of my head. I even had to tell my parents, I'm going to go to culinary school and I'm going to work for craft and I'm going to be doing amazing things there. I'm going to be like a scientist there. I kind of had to frame it <laughs> like I'm not going to be cooking as much as you think I am, which was not true. In the back of my head, it was always you have to be successful. What do your sister and brother think about how successful you are now and how many people know you and everything that you've done and are doing? They're very proud. They came here whenever they were like seven or eight. They're more Americanized than my parents are, for sure. They understand my career a little bit better. But no, they're very proud. They're very supportive as well. My brother was always a little bit like, are you sure you want to be in cooking school? Don't you want to go do this, do that? And I'm like, no, I don't, because he's a lawyer. So he's like, are you sure you don't want to go to law school? I did it. You can do it, too. I know you can. Well, I was like, no, nah, it's okay. My sister's been very supportive as well. I'm lucky. Your parents got one lawyer, so I think that also kind of takes the pressure off. Yeah, yeah. He helped. He was the boy. He did the lawyer thing. That's good. My sister was a private investigator. She went down a not-so-basic, quote-unquote, route as well. She was kind of a badass, too. So by the time it was your turn, you were kind of like, okay, have the runway. (laughs) I was like, I can be the creative one. (laughs) I love that. Speaking of creativity, I kind of am obsessed with your Twitter It's really fun. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) Thanks. It's my diary of sorts, but the diary has, like, likes and stuff. Whenever I have thoughts in my brain and I'm like, huh, I don't really want to say this to my sister. I don't want to say this to my husband. I want to say to someone at work. I'm just going to say it to the ether and see what happens. Even though you have like 60,000 followers, it feels more anonymous there to share something than to share it face-to-face with someone that you know. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It feels comfortable that I can type characters into the ether and maybe someone will will say, cool. Maybe someone will say, why did you say that? I think it's fun and it's scary and it's silly. But yeah, it's like a public diary. I really do say whatever's on my mind. I can see that. Speaking of which, there was a tweet from a year or two ago that I read, and I'll just read it out loud to you now and then can chat about it for a second. You wrote, being the only Persian Jewish woman I know in food media is hard and quite taxing at times. I wish I had more people like me I could talk to about the nuances of being true to my culture while also being digestible to the masses. If you fall in these categories, hit me up. What were you feeling then or why were you inclined to tweet that? I think a year or two ago, I was getting my footing being at Mythical. I noticed that I was kind of a little bit of a minority in a lot of rooms. And I'm like, I keep trying to find ways to connect and ways to find people that are like in the same realm as me or someone that that thinks the same way as me. It was a little bit difficult for me to connect on on that level, especially with food and how to like express who I am with food, but also making sure that I'm not ruffling feathers, making sure that I'm not hurting anyone or being too much for someone. So I think it was going into the ether and just asking for help. Was there a specific moment that made you want to tweet that? No, it was just a feeling. It was a feeling of being the only not white person in the room and being the only Persian girl in the room. It was a little bit unique for me because I was, again, that Persian Jewish bubble in Los Angeles that everybody knows. Once you're out of there, it's so intimidating sometimes. But luckily for me, I kind of was like, 
it's really not that deep. You don't necessarily need to have like your exact clone or your exact counterpart in a room with you. Like you can be that individual that makes those waves and makes those changes. You can be that person. Were any of the responses or retweets or anything surprising, disappointing, illuminating? What was the general response? I think a few people were like, hey, I'm Persian and Jewish and I love food too. Like there was a lot of that. But whenever it came to food media personalities, I didn't really see any there. And I was just confused. I'm like, maybe I am the only one. Damn it. Well, how did you ultimately find ways to root yourself and say, okay, even if I am the only one for the moment, I'm going to lean into that and I want to share this part of myself with everyone? It just came to a point where I'm like, I just have to be that person. And I'm just going to be unapologetically myself and share stories of, you know, growing up in Beverly Hills and having parents that were, you know, Persian Jewish immigrants. These are stories that are interesting and people want to hear. Have you brought a little bit more of your Persian recipes and stories and everything into your work? We just did a 2v2 taco battle, and I made Fesson June tacos, <laughs> and they won. That was fun, you know? Yeah, we made a saffron taco dough, a saffron masaharina, which was delicious and yellow. We had this beautiful braised meat with this pomegranate sour walnut stew, and then there were pomegranate arils and a bunch of sabzi, which is just like a bunch of herbs. So we had basil, cilantro, parsley, just over the top. And it was the most delicious bite. So little by little, I like inch and I'm like, let's do a Persian thing here. Let's put a Persian ingredient in this. Let's talk about this on the podcast a little bit. Yeah, the door is open and you just keep knocking on it, essentially. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to wait for anyone else. I'm just going to do it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I'm not done with Twitter yet. You just very recently wrote, Recipe developers, remember that the original title of your food from your culture should always go first. That's right. Not the other way around. That's right. Don't let anyone anglicize your shit. That's right. There has to be a backstory behind that. Yeah, it was whenever I was doing the duck taco, the Fesson June taco recipe. I'm like, how can I make this digestible for people to click on the video? But how can I also say that this is a Persian-ass recipe? The SEO of Fess and June might not be as high as pomegranate walnuts do. But explaining it as Fess and June and not as a derivative of something else was very important to me. Just enjoy it. There's no comparison to that dish. Also, what I thought about when you tweeted that was that there's so many foods that are kind of, quote-unquote, considered American now. But I'm sure at their time, they seemed very foreign or not easily pronounceable or not on people's radars. But eventually, they became something that everyone knew. Yeah, that's true. I think it's just exposure and not burying it and anglicizing it to make it digestible. I think it's it's just letting it exist as it is. Are there any other chefs or online personalities that you follow or that you love to try recipes from their culture? Yes. First of all, Padma Lakshmi. I love her. She's so talented, does incredible cooking. I love what she does online. Kiana Moju is incredible. She shares a lot of West African recipes. She does not care about making it digestible to anybody. And the food is absolutely gorgeous. Stunning things that I've never seen before. I can't wait to actually try. Nicole Dayani, she's another Persian Jewish chef. She's actually really, really talented and makes beautiful recipes that, again, she does not care to anglicize either. 
all those three people follow them and look at their stuff. It is beautiful, beautiful cookery at hand. I will definitely do that. All right, Nicole, thank you so, so much for being with us and sharing your story. It was illuminating and funny. It was just so great chatting with you. It was such a pleasure being on, Amanda. Thank you. That was Nicole Anayati. You can find her Persian Shabbat recipes and family story on jewishfoodsociety.org. And if you like what you heard, be a mensch and rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Schmalti is produced by the Jewish Food Society in partnership with Pod People and made with love in NYC. Our executive producer is Nama Shafi and our theme music is by Yuval Sema. Special thanks to the team at Pod People, Rachel King, Matt Sav, Amy Machado, Madison Lesby, Robin Gelfenbein, Carter Wogan, and Michael Aquino. I'm your host, Amanda Dell. Thanks for listening. See you next time.